Hi, I'm Courtney. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People, the podcast where I speak with individuals or couples living with or affected by sexually transmitted infections. Today, I have the author of Asking for a Friend, Rich Mancuso, with me. Rich, we didn't really go over like how I wanted you to introduce yourself, but we're going to be very, very like traditional Something Positive for Positive People format. So give me your age, race, sex, sexual preference, and relationship status. Hey, Courtney. Um, my age, ooh, which I don't really like to talk about, is 49. <laughs> my race is a short little white guy. Um, <laughs> uh, I am a straight male. Um, career field. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you need anything else. Just your uh, career field, and then uh, what part? What's your demographic? Geographic? Oh my God, geography. Where oh, do you oh. live? <laughs> my, uh, I, I live in the state, the wonderful state of New Jersey. Oh my God, uh, you're not gonna have uh, that accent throughout the podcast, are you? I don't, well, I'll try not to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, I am by trade. A truck driver at the moment I drive a concrete truck but for the past 13 12 years I was an exterminator mm. tell me about that how was being an exterminator like did you exterminate everything or were we just talking about like bugs um, well it was a little bit of it was a little bit of everything the company that I worked for was very large mm. um, we, we mainly took care of industrial accounts that was my specialty was food and beverage mm. and essentially I was responsible for keeping the bugs out of your food Oh, shit. So, like, did you see anything? Like, I, I can only imagine working in a restaurant. You've seen some shit. Well, I didn't really. A lot of the night guys ended up working restaurants, and I only filled in for them mm-hmm. once in a while. I would mainly take care of very large food manufacturing facilities, like juice manufacturers okay. and milk manufacturers. So, yeah, I've seen some things. Oh, man. Well, we won't talk about it. I don't want to ruin juice for anybody. <laughs> All right. So, um,. Rich, you have HSV two genitally, and um, I, I, actually, uh, we, I never, I never straightened that out with you. I actually was diagnosed with HSV two genitally, but I also get it on my uh, face, on my eye, and on the side of my head. Oh yeah, we didn't talk about that. I remember saying that in the book though, but um, yeah. we we'll we'll touch on that as well. But um, right now, so how long have you been diagnosed? I would say approximately 25 years. 25 years. So you were diagnosed at 24? Um, well, no, there was, uh, I would say I was about, mm, see, this is where the story gets a little interesting. So the very first time that I think that I was having an outbreak, um, when I went to the doctor, and this was before the internet, this was before cell phones and all that other wonderful things that we have that we're talking about right now, um, when I had gone to the doctor and he just looked at me very quickly and said that it was a yeast infection, you know, pretty much get the hell out of my office. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never swabbed or there was no blood test. There was no nothing. And it was, the bedside manner was just completely atrocious for whatever reason I was in and I was out. Um, the, whatever I had down there, which I think could very possibly have been uh, genital herpes had gone away and I never saw anything for years so there was a period maybe about four or five years that i didn't see anything and it completely forgot about it Mm -hmm. didn't even think about it and to tell you the truth there wasn't really any information for us back then other than going to a library so what's a library is that like (laughs) 
a, a Google exactly. storefront, <laughs> storefront before Google. <laughs> exactly. You, you mentioned the word library to some kids, and they're, they they have no idea what it is. <laughs> all right. So, you know, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I felt, you know, I was at work, and I had, I felt like a sting on my, on my cheek, on my buttock, and I thought, you know, somebody, one of the guys is screwing around with a hot iron and just, we were full, we used to just tease each other in the shop all the time. I was a mechanic at the time, but there was nobody around. It was just me. And I ended up like, I was like, what was that? I felt like something bit me. Like, how, really? how old were you at this point in time? Oh, I had, I had to be about 24. Okay. Somewhere around there. Yeah. All right. And, uh, I didn't know what it was, and everybody's looking at me like a crazy person, like I'm yeah. jumping around, like <laughs> they thought I was putting on a show. So a couple of hours later, by the time I got home, there was this big red welt, and I'm like, oh, damn, I did get stung by something. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a bee or something. I you know, I got very fair skin. Who knows what it could have been? But the next morning when I had got up, I, I had flu-like symptoms. I, I could hardly move, and when I looked at it, it was huge. It was bigger than the uh, size of a silver dollar, and it had blistered over. And I thought, wow, I don't know what the hell this is. This is scaring the crap out of me because I know from just basic knowledge of spider bites, what if it was necrotic? Yeah. You know what I mean? Turns out, of course, obviously, I went to the doctor, and the doctor just took one look at it. He goes, yeah, congratulations, you got herpes. Here, take these pills. That's what he said? Congratulations, you have herpes? Yeah, well, he goes, yeah. Congratulations, you got her. That's so, and this is unfamiliar to me. So, for you, your first, well, that outbreak in particular, which um, could be, could have been your first or second, it was on your butt cheek. Well, the very first one that I talked about was on my genitals. Right. And you know, I was, I was dating somebody at the time, and I had thought maybe they had given me something. Mm-hmm. But when the doctor had said it was a yeast infection, or if I'm recalling properly. It, that didn't really kind of make sense to me, but then again, I wasn't a doctor and I was a stupid kid. Yeah. I didn't know any better. So like right? the, the so. doctor said, it's nothing to be worried about. So yes, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we, we, we put a lot of faith in doctors back then because, you know, we, we don't have the ability to look up on WebMD, but we had, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, that's just a weird place to me to have an outbreak. So it goes from your genitals to your butt cheek, was there any science or anything backing up why that could be? Um, no, but actually it's quite common for people to get uh, first or second or third outbreaks on their on their buttocks. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with the nerve pathways to where the original herpes infection has infected. Right. So it's funny because I was explaining this to somebody before. They were like, well, you know, I have herpes and... It's probably everywhere, and why does it only come out? And I was like, whoa, 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 stop. Stop for a second. Let me explain this to you. It's not everywhere. It's not in every part of your body. What happens is is that the herpes infection makes its way through either your skin, your mucosal membrane. For people who get it on their mouth, it's a pretty soft, wet, great area for bacteria and viruses. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be a scientist to know that. And what happens is it gets into that area, and it follows the nerve path. And that it ends up staying in that nerve branch. Yeah. So when you get infections, you people who tend to get them on their mouths constantly get them on the same area or close to it because it's following that same nerve path. Now, when you get it genitally, it's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the nerve paths down there are much longer and bigger than they are up here. 
So there are times where people would get it in one spot and then the next time they get it, they get it in another spot. But after so many years, you'll see a pattern where it's in those same areas. Okay. Got it's it. not, it's not a perfect science. There are people who get them in other areas later on in life, mm-hmm. but you know, it is, it's unfortunately it's the shitty part of this disease. Yeah. Yeah. And just for the sake of this podcast and like moving forward, what we're going to try and do is just use virus and infection. That's what we're, no. that's what we're trying to do here. Gotcha. Uh, Sorry. So I know, I know. And it's written in the book and it's how it's what you use. But like, just for the sake of us okay. trying to readjust and realign the stigma, you know, just the word disease itself has such a negative connotation, whereas infection and virus are a little more, a little more, uh, I guess friendly. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, um, that's how HSV works. Um, in your personal experience, so you get this on your butt cheek. The doctor says, "Congratulations, you've got herpes." Of course, sarcastically. Um, what were your options after that? Did you get any treatment, medication, resources, or what? Uh, I wouldn't say any resources. Um, basically, it was a prescription for Valtrex. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Literally, I was sitting in the doctor's office um, in shock because, like, you know, I was like, where are, you, where are you going? You know, I have questions. Yeah. Like, I'm saying this I'm saying this to myself in my head. I'm like, where the hell is he going? But he just, he was here for five minutes, looked at it, and then left. And then, like, now I'm standing in the hallway and I'm walking back to the receptionist office with this piece of paper in my hand just in shock. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with this information? Mm-hmm. And they're just like, okay, have a nice day. I'm like, I, I guess, I guess I'm leaving. And then, you know, I just, I went home. I went to, I went and got the prescription filled. Good thing I had insurance at the time. Right. And, you know, I started taking it. It, it, it was unfortunate for me that I got side effects from taking the medication. It was getting huge migraines, um, stomach issues. So it, as far as choices were concerned, I, not, not very many. It was either the choice to take the medication and deal with the headaches and the stomach aches and possibly, you know, continue with that or to stop taking it and deal with the outbreaks. Yeah. So you've got, I mean, you don't have many options at all. And neither of those are one, you, you wouldn't want to choose one over the other. I mean, I guess, depending right. on the severity. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, what, what do you choose? Mm. And, you know, most people do okay on antivirals. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm knocking them. They, they, did, serve, they did serve a purpose. But, mm. you know, if I wanted to be with somebody, you know, I would never want them to get this. So I had to take, you know, I was taking heavy doses of the stuff because I was scared. Yeah, and I'm assuming, like, the heavier the dose, the greater the side effects, too. So... You know, it at that point, me, yeah. do you want to be with you? Would anyone want to be with you while you're constantly like, oh, fuck my head and my stomach? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, I think this is a good point for us to talk about what I mean, the next steps. So you're dealing with severe outbreaks. The medication mm-hmm. is giving you side effects. So now you're you're seeking anything. You're seeking relief. So where where are we at this point after you realize that the medication isn't working? very deep dark hole because at the time there really was no information right there was no there was no internet you know there wasn't any sort of resource um and to be honest i don't think i was brave enough to go to a clinic 
and I don't even think I even realized that one existed at the time. Mm-hmm. I was very, I was very poor. I was very destitute. I was living paycheck to paycheck, and I was doing the best I could with what I had. Um, there was times I was living in a rooming house. There was times that I was living in a tiny, you know, boarding houses and apartments, just trying to get by to make it to the next day. Yeah. And you know, it, it wasn't. I wasn't a drug addict, and I wasn't an alcoholic. Well, <laughs> I should take that back. I was. A, I was a bit of a drinker back in the day. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, other than those particular issues, it wasn't like I was completely not functioning. I, I was. A, I was a functioning human being, but I just wasn't making a lot of money. Yeah. So there. So there were times I was in between jobs where I wouldn't be able to afford the meds. So now I'm forced with living with the outbreaks. Mm. And so, you know, and, and plus I'm a young guy at the time and I'm trying to make my way through life, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next with what little money that I have. You don't have very many options. No, not at all. So. Not at all. All right. So what led you to uh, the clinical trial for the Theravax? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a huge jump forward, but I like where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know there's a lot. I don't want to give away too much. I mean, we want people no, to still find no, the book, totally, read the book. Yeah, it's cool. So yeah. everything in between there about, you know, your your come up, the up and up and everything. I think that we yeah. can leave that for people to go and get the book for. Um, but, yeah, this is what I want to know or this is what the listeners are going to want to know. Like, they want to know what's like what's the deal, what happened, how would you get to yeah. the point? It was com- completely by accident. Mm-hmm. So this was, geez, I think it's like three years ago, uh, 2015. And uh, I was in a Facebook group. And everybody knows by now that there's a Facebook group for everything. There's one for cats. There's one for dogs. <laughs> there's one. There's ones for people showing off their muscles, and there's one for people showing off food. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's one for everything. So herpes is not really that much of a difference. So there's different groups for people who are single who want to be, you know, living with. Uh, they want to date. There's people with herpes who have, you know groups that get together to do hikes, you know, group for everything. And this particular group that I was in was a group that was looking for new information on cures and vaccines and all kinds of other ideas that people have. And it was based on science. Mm-hmm. And I was having a discussion with someone in that group and they were saying, well, you only get genital herpes on your genitals. You don't get it anywhere else. And I was like, "Uh oh, excuse me. (laughs) I have something to add to this conversation. And I posted a picture of one that was on my face, which was right in the middle of my face on my cheek. And it was quite large. And that discussion had consumed the entire day with many people asking questions about it. And this was at a point in time where I had tried everything. And what do you mean by everything when you say you've tried everything? I I spent money on whatever I could. If there was something, even if it was snake oil, I spent money on it. You know, rub this oil on your area every three hours or, you know, drink drink lemon water or or purchase this mineral supplement type thing and try these. And I, I tried it. And the, the woman that was one moderator in that group was my friend Carolyn. And she knew Dr. Bill. Is she okay with you using her name? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, she's absolutely okay. She's actually gone public with it, and she's in the documentary that's coming out at the end of 2018. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she's totally okay with it. Um, and she was in the group, and she saw 
the picture that I had posted. And she's like, oh, this is interesting. And we started talking offline, and she says, look, I know Dr. Bill, and I know this scientist, and he works for a school, and he is working on a vaccine. It's experimental, and he's going to be doing a trial overseas. And it may be something you, you may be good for. And I was like, yes, I would love to talk to him. Mm-hmm. So uh, a day or two had gone by, and I ended up getting an email. And then we ended up talking on the phone for three hours. And it was probably one of the greatest conversations I've ever had. Yeah. You know, I mean, here's this guy who's uh, a bona fide scientist who's been working for the past 20 years on this on this virus, looking for solutions, and he found something. And he tested it on animals and it worked. Mm-hmm. He tested it on himself. He injected himself before he injected anybody else. And he proved that it was safe. So the next step was the trial. Now, unbeknownst to me and everybody else in the trial, we didn't know he injected himself. Right. We didn't know he did any of that stuff. I knew that he did the animal studies and he sent me the paperwork and he sent me um, the links to his studies. And it was fascinating. And it was also very difficult to read. I don't know if you've ever read, read a uh, scientific study, but you have to constantly go back and look at these giant words. Yeah, <laughs> I've had to for, for research classes, and it's not, it's not a fun thing to have to do. No, no, and it can get very confusing. It, it took me several times to really understand what he was doing. Um, he was nice enough to explain it, but you know, we had the conversation of why he thought I was good for the trial, but he also... The thing I admired about him is that he never tried to sell me on the vaccine. He had all this knowledge, but he just kept it very basic and very matter of fact. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, look, uh, I'm doing the trial. It's going to be overseas. I'll pay for your plane ticket. Um, But you need to know that there are risks involved with an experimental vaccine. Such as? Well, he, he said, you know, there could be side effects. Even though, even though he knew that there wasn't going to be any, mm-hmm. he, he literally told me, he gave me the sheet of the consent form, and he said, there can be side effects. You can get swelling at the injection site. You can get flu-like symptoms. And who knows? It could be anything else. Yeah. I mean, was, just I, because herpes is such a tricky thing and it's different for everyone, while his treatment may be a little bit, well, his reaction to the treatment may be a little bit different than someone else's. So that, that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And he even said, he goes, this is an experimental vaccine, and honestly, I don't know if it's going to work for you. But if you're willing to take the chance, I'm willing to have you in the trial. Okay. Now, can we give the definition of vaccine? Because you, when I hear vaccine, as I'm sure majority of the public does, it means... I am protected from contracting something. Now, given that you're given a vaccine for a, for herpes virus mm-hmm. after you've already been diagnosed with herpes, how is this working? Okay, there's, there is a huge misconception about vaccines being immunotherapy. And that's, and that's not anybody's fault because it's, it's really just a new type of thing. Right. So you hear a lot of if you watch the news and you listen to Google and you you see all these things and newscasts that come out, you can see that a lot of scientists and a lot of new medications are talking about immunotherapy, especially when it comes to cancer and HIV. So what Dr. Bill created, he created a prophylactic vaccine and a therapeutic vaccine. So a vaccine, by definition, 
is something that you get to protect yourself from getting that virus or disease, right? So uh, measles, mumps, rubella, these are all diseases that don't have cures, but there's a vaccine that's preventative and protects you. So he created one for herpes as well that will protect people from getting herpes. But using another vaccine, which is very similar, you know, and I should correct this, I don't know if it's exactly the same thing or not. Mm-hmm. It could be exactly the same vaccine or it could be a variation of something else. I think it's a different variation. Okay. Um, I'd have to ask uh, Dr. Ed what and, the definition of and that when is. You, and when you get that, just let me know so that I can include the resource in the show notes. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to get in touch with him. But uh, either way, whether it's a exact same thing as the other one, but either way, Dr. Bill used the Theravax vaccine, which is the therapeutic vaccine, which I think is different, but... And the way that that works is, is that, for instance, myself, when I was initially infected, my body never got a full complement of instructions on how to fight the virus. So what happens is, is that the herpes virus gets into your body and it has very sneaky abilities and it gets into the cell immediately before the immune system can identify it. Now, for some people, for most people on the planet, they go through their lives every day and they never have a problem. Most of them don't even know they have it. And that could be a number of different reasons. Maybe their immune system really got a good look at it. Maybe their immune system is very strong. And maybe the, the exposure wasn't really that strong when they got it. So their body had the ability to say, oh, okay, this is a virus. And these are all the 75 proteins that I need to make antibodies for. And these are all the things that I need to do to make T cells and antibodies and protect myself. So these people are doing fine. But for somebody like myself, more than likely, I did not, my immune system did not have the capability of getting a full picture of what was going on. And it only got a couple of the 75. Mm-hmm. So because that happened and my body didn't get a full vision of instructions, it doesn't know how to fight it. So herpes is by 75. We're talking about the 75 proteins that are in herpes. Mm-hmm. Correct? Okay. Correct. So our bodies, or in this case, your body was not able to um, fight the virus or protect you better against outbreaks because you your body didn't know how to deal with the other proteins that were in it, with all of That's- the proteins. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're giving a dumbed-down version of it, but yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if your body's immune system does not get a full, or at least the important parts of it, a full, uh, Dr. Bill used antigenic breath to see all 75 of them, it's very difficult for the immune system to fight something that it only has half the instructions or a quarter of the instructions. Okay. It, can't, it can't make antibodies for something it doesn't see. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a dumbed-down version, but, okay. um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's why people like myself who are struck with constant outbreaks for the rest of their lives, and there are at least maybe approximate 100 million people who suffer in the worst way who are sitting home silently screaming for help, and nothing seems to work. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, one of the women in the trial was getting two to three outbreaks a week. Mm-hmm. 
That's, so in her case, it would like it would come and go, come and go, come and go. It was brutal for her. Yeah. yeah I mean, you could just I, I I could see it in her face when she was talking. It was just just awful. So everyone who was involved with these trials, they were all experiencing severe outbreaks. So the, this mm-hmm. is like the what we would see now when we go to Google and we see the worst outbreaks and we hear, oh my God, yeah. this is the worst thing ever. That's the type of person who participated in this study. Bill was very specific and pick, picking people for that reason because he wanted to help people who were suffering the worst. And it was one of the one of the the, the, the sticks that stuck in his craw and a little bit of mine as well. These trials that have been going on for the past 30 to 40 years, these many of these trials are not picking people who are suffering in the worst way. They're picking people who don't really suffer that much. And for me, even somebody who's not a scientist, I just never understood why they would do that. And Bill took it to the next level. And he took it to the next level because people were literally reaching out to him and saying, give me a reason to not kill myself. And he really took that seriously. So when he did the trial, he did it. He's like, you know, I need to pick people who are suffering the worst because if for some reason this doesn't get out and the government stops it or I die early, you know, I want to at least know that I helped a handful of people. And he's reiterated this over the past couple of years many times. And it's just, it gives me chills every time I think about it. And for those who don't know, Bill recently, well, I don't know how recent it was, but passed away from cancer, correct? Yeah, he had, um, it was June 22nd, 2017. He, um, sinonasal differentiated carcinoma. It's a cancer of the sinuses. Mm-hmm. And um, he was diagnosed six years ago, and he didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell us. I mean, obviously his family knew. And rational vaccines and the people he worked with knew, but he didn't really reveal that to me um, until maybe the last year or so. Mm. And they really didn't think he was going to have that much time to live. The doctor gave him a year to live and he ended up living almost six. Yeah. And I think that 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 speaks to, I mean, side note here, but just the power of purpose and how, focusing so hard on something that you truly believe in and you have selfless intent with uh it it extended his life in this case like that's what kept him going so i mean i'm glad that he was able to help the at least everyone who participated in this trial and who knows what's going to happen in the future as a result of his work well, the upsetting thing for me was is that when people started talking bad about him, and of course, you know, I kind of took it a little too hard, and I, I probably could have learned a little, <laughs> could have learned to take it a little bit better. But, um, you know, Bill was working up until the last day he that he could. Like it was a couple of days before he died that he was still on the computer and he was still typing away. You know, here's a man who told his doctor to put off his chemotherapy because he was working on something new on the formula or maybe not the formula, but whatever he was working on, he told the doctor like, okay, we put the chemo off till Saturday because I got to get this done. Right. And and like, what do you, what do you say to that? You know, the doctor's like, what are you nuts? You got to get your ass in here. We got to get this chemo going. He's like, well, I'll be there on Saturday. Right. I'm busy. Yeah. (laughs) Who says that? As a, a mad scientist. Honestly, yeah. yeah, he's you know he was he was 
something that you only you know you read about in in fiction books yeah and i thought that too when you said he injected himself i was like whoa you know that's <laughs> something yeah. you only see on tv like you know what well, this this yeah, works for sure doctor yeah uh, dr jonas salk uh injected himself with the polio vaccine when he first invented it because he wanted to make sure it was safe yeah and then so, i mean if it wasn't i guess no one would have known or people would have known in that instance yeah, I, I think people take that act, you know, people judge, well, people judge things a little too uh, hastily most of the time anyway. You know you've been on the internet. Um, I, I think that's an act of selflessness to inject yourself with something, whether you're, whether you're confident that it's safe or not, to take that chance before you do it to somebody else yeah that's a pretty selfless act and it's not like we're just like downing a drink or taking a pill that's working its way through the digestive system like we're entering this into our bloodstream in this case well not with the herpes vaccine the oh. herpes vaccine is, is, is it definitely does not go into the bloodstream but okay um but with the polio vaccine the polio vaccine as well yeah they don't they don't let's i just want to make sure people understand that yeah. it does not go into the bloodstream because herpes is not in the blood um, it's in the nervous system, although there oh, are so some... that that explains the shots, the uh, visuals, like the shots that you received mm-hmm. weren't like in any sort of vein, correct? This was just like under certain skin cells. Just directly under the skin, under the epidermis. Okay. And these were in the calves and... Just in the calves. Okay, just in the calves. All right. Yeah, what he did was like, you know, he picked like the left calf for the first shot. And then the second shot was the the right calf, and then the third shot was in the other calf. So it just it just went back and forth. Mm-hmm. Now, what did the trial look like for you? So you go out of, I mean, you get flown overseas to the island of kids. Yeah. Why? Why there? Why? The um, I'm not really sure to the exact reasons why he picked it. Um, I believe he. I, I don't believe the news. Uh, articles that have come out and said, you know, the, the, the island of St. Kitts had no idea. I don't believe that for one second. You know, this is a man who was very calculated. You know, um, he, they, they knew what was going on. Um, when the, it was not what you would think a typical trial would be. And I go into descriptions in the book. It's, it's almost kind of surreal because, you know, I'm flying to a tropical island. You know what I mean? To mm-hmm. go get a shot for herpes. It just, it, it all seemed crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and looking from the outside, looking in, I can see where people would say, this sounds a little nuts. You know, you're going to get a shot. You don't know what's in it. You don't know who these people are, but yet you're taking this chance. But I think that that goes to show just how, how desperate we can become you know, for any sort of relief. I mean, you know, you took a chance with someone sent you an email and said, I'm going to pay for you to come out here. Like for all you knew at that point in time. Well, I mean, after watching (laughs) you watch enough murder mysteries, you know, (laughs) like I could be going (laughs) into exactly what I had said. Yeah. The movie. It's so funny. I mean, you, you read the book and you read that section. So, you know, here I am. I don't know any of these people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm jumping on a plane that somebody's paying for my ticket. I get to the airport, they rush me off to the hotel and drop me off, and I'm like, holy <laughs> crap, man, I hope I don't wake up 
missing the fucking kidney. Yep. Or or worse, like I've seen the movie Hostel. I couldn't watch the second one. Like where they go overseas and then uh, like it's it's supposed to be just this fun vacation and you're in this room strapped to a chair and they're pulling off your toenails and shit like that. I. <laughs> That's some scary stuff, man. And so it was, to- it was totally surreal. But you know, looking <laughs> back, there, I spent a lot of time reading his his studies mm-hmm. and reading his blog and doing research on what he's been doing and his teaching. And I, I even though it sounded a little crazy, I felt pretty confident yeah. that this was the real deal. So or at in- least. The idea of going there was the real deal. Mm-hmm. And doing your research, that's what gave you more confidence because you said you've already tried everything. And mm-hmm. so I would imagine that someone who's tried everything would at this point be pretty skeptical in mm-hmm. flying to an island and getting a shot or a few shots and participating in a clinical trial. So how did you, how are you able, how is someone able to make the different or to differentiate between you know, oh, this is bullshit, and oh, this might be the real deal, or this is something that I really should investigate further. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I was very skeptical even while getting the treatment. Uh, I'm glad that I did it, but even during the first and second shots, I was just kind of like, you know, what if this is just another failed attempt at getting this under control? Mm-hmm. But at least it was science. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't some, you know, shaman wearing a tie-dye t-shirt in a teepee somewhere <laughs> telling me to stand on my head and rub feces on my belly while I hum a tune. You know what I mean? It yeah. was it was <laughs> it was a little more based in reality. Uh-huh. And, and with, uh, with you and coming I, I I will admit that I was I was nervous mm-hmm. about failing again because everything else had failed and I had this huge history of failure. So this was going to be, you know, I'm just going to give it one more try. Yeah. And I mean, while we're on this part of the conversation, I wanted to ask you, you know, given the stresses of being here, being in America, working as an exterminator, I kind of, as I was reading, thought to myself, hmm, you know, you go from you know, working in New Jersey, you're an exterminator, like you've got your daily stresses going on around you. Could, you know, part of the healing process have been getting away from that, getting away from the everyday nine to five grind and Mm -hmm. going to a beautiful island and then being treated for herpes? Like, what were the odds? In my head, I'm thinking, oh, this could be some sort of a placebo effect because stress is one of the triggers for herpes. So now you're in a stress-free environment and you have in your mind that you're being treated, uh, that you're going to be able to get the kind of treatment that you need. So did yeah. that kind of, uh, did that play a role in it at all? Well, actually, that's a really good question. Um, it's it, it, it does it does infer the question right so when you talk about the placebo effect but i don't think the placebo effect would have an effect on uh herpetic virus infection of that magnitude um there are times during my life i was feeling pretty good and i would find even in those moments i would still get outbreaks Mm. um but to 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 really answer your question during the process of getting the first, second, and third shot, I was still getting outbreaks during the procedure. Okay. But the important thing to remember is is that 
After the first shot, the outbreaks were diminishing in size and duration. So my normal two to three outbreaks were slowly diminishing. And this was after I left the island and after I was home. So, I mean, yeah, I believe the stress could definitely affect my my personal outbreaks and my personal uh, fight with the virus. And there have been times, even when I was on antivirals, if I got really stressed out, I would definitely get an outbreak. Yeah, I could, I, I, I could totally concede where you're going with that, and I, and I get it. I would ask the same question. Yeah, because with the way that the procedure went, and you can see in the book in the back where I go into descriptions on exactly the days, the symptoms, um, you know, when I got the outbreak, when was the first shot, when was the next shot, and all of the outbreaks in between you can see a pattern from a regular calendar that would be two to three months, two to three outbreaks every single month. Yeah. You can see a sort of clearing of the virus being fought. Right. So I, 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 I don't think that the stress, I think the stress-free environment is great. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I don't think it, it Listen, to, if we're going to be completely honest, could it have played a small part in it? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. But if you look at the data, I mean, you can kind of extrapolate your own kind of idea from what I give you in the book. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we didn't want to give too much away there either. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, so just judging from the book, judging from your attitude now, so what's your, how are your outbreaks now? How are you managing the outbreak? So I haven't had anything for almost a year. March so, twenty, actually March twenty fifth will be a year. Okay, so going from uh, receiving the treatments, you how long ago was that? When did the treatments end for you? Well, April first was the first injection. Uh, Two thousand seventeen. Yeah, you're gonna make me remember now. Hold on. <laughs> See, this is why this is why Rich always writes everything down because my memory. <laughs> yeah, I saw terrible. you wrote the sticky notes when we were talking about you know do's and don'ts of the podcast. And like, ah, oh, all right, let me get this written down. <laughs> Got to put this on a sticky note. So, yeah, and I and the reason why I kept such a huge, a reason why I kept this log is because somehow a part of me knew that this was going to be important. I never, I never really intended on writing a book. Yeah. Um, it was it was only until after Bill had died, and I think his voice died with him at that point, and nobody was talking about it. So, but um, the first vaccination was April first. Uh, the second was May fifth, and the third was July seventh, and that was July seventh of twenty sixteen. Two thousand sixteen. Got it. Yeah. So, in that in that period, you know, of January, February, March. You know, of 2017, that was getting like maybe, and and the year before, there was a huge, there's huge gaps. Like I would get one or two small outbreaks, and then nothing for like four months. Yeah, it was amazing. It okay. was like I saw I saw a reaction right away that they were smaller and they were getting much different. Uh-huh. It, it, it was you know it was in my head where I wanted to go away completely, but you know. Mm-hmm. For somebody like myself who's had it that bad, it's going to take, you know, even Dr. Bill had guessed it was going to take a year for it to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, he proved me right. Yeah. <laughs> he was right. So at this point, you're one year of out, you're one year outbreak free, correct? Mm-hmm. 
Now, how does this affect shedding at all? Like, are you still able to pass VHSV? Are you able to pass herpes on to someone else, a potential partner or a partner? The way that the way that Bill had explained it to me, and he said emphatically, he said, "We don't know because the tests have not been performed." Okay. But, but it is my best guess, based on the data based on asymptomatic shedding and the studies that have been done on uh, on other forms of herpes as well, that the shedding more than likely will be minimal mm-hmm. or close to nothing. Okay. But there's still and a chance. So we're not ruling the, out the fact that you can still pass herpes there's, on. There's a possibility. Okay. But we, we don't have a, a, a definitive answer. Got it. And I still have to disclose. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, it doesn't really matter because now that I'm, I've been public about this for two years, the women who have herpes who may or may not want to be with me don't want to be with me because I'm public about it. And then women, of course, who don't have herpes who may or may not want to be with me don't want to be with me because I'm public. So that has created its own special paradox. <laughs> so dating sucks. <laughs> dating is, Welcome dating, to 2018. I know what that word is. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I Googled myself the other day, and the first thing that comes up is personal trainer talks about his STD, and I'm like, well, shit, that's, <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> well, hey, listen, if you Google yourself in private, no one can no one can judge you for that. Yeah, I guess, but I just wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking to myself, I was like, well, I wonder what comes up, because I've been doing the podcast for... It's not even been a year yet. And really? Yeah. Because um, I started, I recorded a conversation with Amy's consent. This was the first episode that we did. Yeah. Um, that was back in the summer 2017. Mm-hmm. And then from there, like, that's when I started to do that. And uh, my podcast dashboard shows that I've been a member since September. So I've officially oh, wow. been podcasting, I guess, since September. But, um, Interesting. What, what made you, what, what drove you to do a podcast? So I worked at an ad agency that bought a lot of podcast advertising and spent a lot of time listening to a lot of them. And like, and it was never in the forefront of my mind to do this mm-hmm. specifically. But a friend of mine and I would always joke, like, oh, we should start a podcast about blank because there's a podcast for everything. Like yeah. if you're in an anime porn, you wear dresses and you like to cook fried desserts. <laughs> like there is a podcast specifically dedicated to you. So um, I guess on like a subconscious level, like I'm listening to all these podcasts and um, I ended up like changing career fields completely and went into personal training. But um, what I did was after dating in the herpes community, like I was single and honestly, like I dating for me has been. What's a good word? (laughs) It's been it's been eventful. Let's say that. So like. It took me five years to find that there were dating sites for people with herpes. And when I found it, I just kind of went crazy. So wow, five years. <laughs> I know, but I mean, I kind of stayed in relationships, but like mm-hmm. once it, once I got into it, like I was into it. So, um, yeah. at some point nice. I was talking to, uh, someone, she, she and I weren't dating. She just wanted a guy's perspective on what it was like to have HSV too. She was newly diagnosed and her, mm. her boyfriend at the time was like, Hey, you know, he, he was very dismissive about it and was just like, it's fine. We're together. You know, if you have it, I, I have it. We have it. 
essentially. Oh, wow. And okay. she seemed to have her stuff together. She was very private, so part of me thinks she was a celebrity. Um, but she didn't have yeah. a picture up or anything, and we spoke a few times. But after a few, I want to say after a few weeks, she let me know that at some point she had contemplated suicide. And to me, I thought, huh, that's weird. Shrugged it off, didn't think anything of it. But then yeah. being in different chat rooms, Facebook groups, I saw more and more and more that this was something that was real. People yeah. really contemplated killing themselves as a result of a herpes diagnosis. And yep. with that being said, you know, who's to say that there aren't people who have done it? We have no way of knowing. Um, and well, kind of do. Well, I mean, we don't have any way of knowing, like, this is specifically why this person killed themselves. Oh, well, yeah, yes and no. Um, there are there are so many herpes, well, at least in this community. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're right. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. You, you are right. But at least in the herpes community, because there are admin groups for administrators of herpes groups, and they all talk to one another. And when somebody does kill themselves... And it does happen to be herpes related. Uh, it is, you know, messaged throughout the community, so people are aware of it. As far as exact numbers, you're you're right. There's no way. To I really didn't. Know. I didn't know that that was a thing. Like people, I guess we know about it within the groups. But let's say you know yeah. a friend of mine recently just off themselves. They didn't leave a suicide note. I don't know that yeah. they have herpes. Maybe that was something that they found out about themselves and just thought I can't do this anymore. And just no one knows why. Like, if it's just completely yeah. blindsided. No, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there are times where people, you know, they have more going on than just herpes. Yeah, definitely. And herpes could actually very well be the straw that breaks the camel's back, or it could be the entire camel. You know, you mm -hmm. don't know. But, yeah, I mean, there are people that talk about it, and, and they say, hey, listen, we just, we lost somebody. And it's not done in a malicious way. It's right, done right. in a informational way, like, hey, if you knew this person, maybe you want to reach out, blah, blah, blah. It's it's a, it's it's for a support type of thing, but you're okay. right, you know. Got it. But um, once she, she told me that, I began to see it more. And I've had an ex-girlfriend who tried to take her life. Fortunately, um, mm. uh, the suicide hotline, uh, I called them, and they were able to get there. And her brother called me and let me know that everything was okay. Um, wow. I've had relatives say, you know, I want to kill myself. And, like, it, it, mm. it just rubbed me the wrong way. And, like, all these, within an instant, like, all these dots connected. And it was... All right, uh, people aren't listening to you when you say having herpes isn't that bad. I'm one of the fortunate ones who got my first outbreak and maybe felt something coming along like three or four times over the last six years, and I was able to just take the medication as a precaution and nothing. Yeah. And um, But like hearing me say it wasn't that bad was not enough. So I was like, okay... This is a woman's perspective. Let me find a woman or even other people who are yeah. willing to say, hey, it's not that bad or this is what I'm dealing with now. Like you think that your life is over. Here's someone who also thought that in the future, who has hindsight and experience, who's been married, who has children, who has a career and yeah. they have these things going for them. So if I can get that story to these people, maybe it would help. 
So fortunately, I found a handful of people who wanted to share. And then when I told people they were sharing, more people shared. And it got to a point where I got tired of sending out Google Drive links to everyone. So I put it on YouTube. So after it got like 300-something views, I was like, well, shit, this is an audio-only format on a video, uh, like a video (laughs) format. So people probably aren't listening all the way through. People probably are seeing it and then being like, oh, fuck this. Like, because you have to have your phone on if you're not subscribed to YouTube uh, oh, Red or yeah. whatever. So when it got to a point where it was that complicated, I was just like, ah, you know what, Courtney, go ahead and drop that $120 or whatever it was to pro- uh, have a podcast feed. So I went on and uh, bought one of the podcast feeds and invested in a podcast mic and um, began just recording through there. And then I went on and uploaded it. Um, and shit, surprisingly, you know, there's 6,000 to this point. Uh, when I last logged on, it was 6,200 downloads at this point. And it's getting out there. It's People are finding it and people are able to find the support groups, the interest groups. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. All that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I, if you could just if you could just reach out and just change a couple of people's lives, you, you've already you've already succeeded. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on with you, too, was uh, like the suicide stuff. So yeah. one of the things that moved you in this direction was obviously, you know, the, the, the number of suicides. You're more aware than I am of people actually doing it and i was just like oh my god people are thinking about doing this so one of the notes that you wrote in your book was that uh suicide is not selfish it's really a desperate move to end pain and have some feeling of control i have never viewed suicide in any perspective outside of selfishness loneliness just being desperate uh, to to just kill yourself like it was just a selfish thing in my mind so to see it this way kind of controls it, it gives me the ability to communicate in what I believe is a more effective way whenever talking to someone because whenever I've spoken to anyone who wanted to commit suicide I, I, I tend to bring them back with something that is affected by them no longer being here in one person's case it was music in another person's case it was a close relative but to to say that they want to in some cases what they're seeking is a sense of control like it's like okay here's the thing that you control here's the thing that you control well put this energy towards controlling that thing rather than feeling an absence of control or a lack of control over your own life because like through that thing is where you can continue to live so i wanted to straight up just thank you for that new perspective because i think it's going to help a lot of people it's it's a perspective that unfortunately i had to experience myself um because like you and like many other people I used to think that, you know, suicide was a selfish act. And it was, it's so funny that you don't really understand something until you experience it or someone close to you has this experience. And I never had enough empathy for that. And year, many, many, many years ago, I would hear people say, oh, oh you know, we killed himself. And I'm like, oh, well, that's fucking stupid. Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And I was, and I was just completely ignorant mm-hmm. of other people's feelings and then when some of the, the, some of the hardest parts of my life, when I was homeless, 
and I was eating out of garbage cans. Which we talk about in the book. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, it took a lot out of me to put that in there, but I, I did it anyway. Um, and, you know, dealing with child abuse, which I kind of left out of the book for personal reasons. Um, I didn't want to change the, the, the theme of the book and the flow of the book because I wanted it to go a certain way, which I'm happy about how it worked out its way anyway. But when you have so many different tragic things happen in your life that you can't control, then you're in a position where it, it, it was it was a sad way for me to learn how to understand that mm-hmm. because in in those moments of where I wanted to end everything everything that I was and everything that I could ever be it was understanding why people are in that position now there's many reasons why they get to that point but to understand that sitting in the bottom of the well where you have no choices and you you're you're trying to control things in your life and you don't have control over them and there's oftentimes many people are not helping you but there's not people around to help you mm-hmm. so when you have somebody who is suicidal and they feel completely lost and they feel completely empty that there's nothing left inside them because they can't figure out a way to control something in their life suicide is the one last thing that they can control and they can make happen they have complete control over it yeah now now i'm not saying that's the same for every person who has felt suicidal but for a great many people it's it's a last ditch effort to feel human on some level and that's kind of it's kind of, kind of why you hear people who are depressed who cut themselves. Yeah. You know, they don't understand that they do that because they're just trying to feel something. Yeah. They're, they're, they're so lost that they've severed that connection and they don't know how to get that connection back with mm. people. They don't know how to get that attention and that connection back. So they do damage to themselves because they're actually starting to feel something. Got it. Yeah. So... I'm glad I'm glad that you got that out of the book, and I hope a lot of other people get something like that out of the book as well. Oh yeah, there's a bunch of little nuggets in there, but um, there is something that's not really elaborated on, and we talked about this, you know, before. So I yeah. I think that it's important for us to at least acknowledge that there hadn't been any real mention of like sex abuse, infidelity, or like those kinds of things. And uh, sexual assault. I'm sorry. I, I said right. sexual abuse. I meant to say sexual assault. And um, the that's just one of the criticisms that I've noticed about the book itself. Do you want to touch on that a little bit as to why there was not much mention of the... I guess it would be... I don't know how to necessarily word it, but I do remember yeah. just seeing that uh, promiscuity, promiscuity was brought up. Oh. Yeah, that was that was a huge one that has been um, uh, misinterpreted, um, and I've seen some of the comments on that. And that particular subject has been completely blown out of proportion. And uh, I think a lot of people who are commenting on that particular comment, uh, they they have not read the book. You you read the book and you understand understood where I was going with that. Um, When I talk about the stigma, basically the book is a story about my personal experience. I talk about 
some things that happened in my life. Um, the, the bout with suicide when I was one of the hugest, biggest rejections that I got from a woman that led me down a different path to where I wanted to commit suicide. Um, I talk about the vaccine, but the biggest chapter in the book is on the stigma, right? And I, I feel sometimes that people don't really have either a full grasp of what the stigma is, and they're just jumping on the bandwagon because it's all they know. Um, it's unfortunate, <laughs> but you know, the stigma is, it wasn't something that was created in 1980 because of the invention of antivirals. It's much bigger than that. It's been around longer than that. The, the stigma upon human sexuality has been prevalent since the dawn of time. As long as we've been, you know, cognizant of our, uh, sexuality, it's been there. You know, you go you go to any Thanksgiving dinner over your friend's house and you watch the shame that happens. It has nothing to do with sex, but God damn, it certainly has a lot to do with family and traditions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that guilt, you know, I have, I, I have friends who are Jewish and I have friends who are Italian. And it's essentially the same thing all over the entire gambit, no matter what nationality you are. Every family has that guilt and shame in it. Right. You know, Grandma came out in Thanksgiving and she looked at you and she wants to know why you have a girlfriend out of wedlock. And she's going to shame you in front of everybody, right? Yep. <laughs> the act of doing this is intrinsically human. So the shame that's upon human sexuality started way before herpes. Herpes is just the end result of some kind of proof that you had some sort of either uh, kissing contact or sexual contact. And it's the same thing as having proof of teenage pregnancy. It's, it's a way to, to shame somebody for something that people have this perception of not being proper behavior. Yeah. So, you know, the stigma, I go through shame, the perceptions, the social, uh, the society and the culture that it was kind of in that area. Uh, I talk about the accusation of promiscuous behavior and the questioning of morality. Um, how words and phrases play into it, the priorities of um, the culture, of the, the medicines and the medical community and the CDC, and I talk about testing, and then, I, and then, of course, the biggest catalyst for the stigma right now is social media. So if you don't read the entire chapter and you just jump to promiscuity and you hear that word in your head, you're going to jump to conclusions. And... I think one of the biggest reasons why the subject of rape and sexual abuse was not in the book was because one reason is I wrote the book in a very somewhat remedial way because I wanted to be able to reach teens all the way up to people who are in their 40s and 50s who are either educated or have been through the gambit, right? So if I was to just write a book that's all scientific, not a lot of people are going to be able to connect to that. And if you have the most important part, which is children who need to learn early, and we all know this very well because we've all been there. Damn, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would. But if you have children who are in their, you know, they're 10, 11, 12 years old, if this is something that they can read and comprehend, then you better be damn sure I'm going to be very happy about that. And I'm not going to be upset if a couple of adults don't like something that's in the book because you know as well as I do, you can't please everybody. 
And nine out of ten people are always going to tell you that at least one person is going to disagree with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the other reason is because um, when I originally wrote the book, in the first chapter, I talked about child abuse. And there's like one or two sentences that are still in there. And I just touch on it. There was originally three pages full of some things that had happened to me as a child. So when we talk about abuse, I'm very familiar with it. I'm not going to go into what kind of abuse. Or it's just I'm just not comfortable with that. To relive that all over again mm-hmm. is I don't feel that I am strong enough to, to deal with that just yet. Um, but when it comes to rape and it comes to all of these terrible things that happen to people, yes, they can be the end result of getting herpes. Absolutely. You can be involved on, you could be abused and you can get an STI. Uh, you can be raped and you can get an STI. Um, all terrible things. And another thing is too, I, it just, I didn't feel comfortable putting it in the book because if you read the chapter on the stigma, it's really talking about where it came from and the parts of it. I'm not really talking about the end results, even though I do talk about suicide kind of sort of being the end result of all of the shame and perceptions and all of these negative things, rape and sexual abuse, um, may, depending on what your perception is and your education, you may think that it's part of that. It's, which is fine. I'm not going to argue that, you know, was it something that I should have added into the book? I, you know, I guess, again, I don't think I'm going to make everybody happy. You know, I kind of wanted to make something that was easy to read that flowed properly and was able to give an inspiration. Like it inspired you when you read the suicide chapter. So I think when people read the stigma, the stigma chapter, it's going to, they're going to be able to get a clearer picture. And quite frankly, I'm just a white guy with a penis. Who, who, who am I to be talking about rape? Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It felt, it feels disingenuous to have that conversation. And we have to realize something too. Like, okay, so there's a lot of movements that are happening right now. So you have the me too movement, you have times up and you have, these women who have this innate ability to capture the commitment of something that is so disturbing as a human being. And quite frankly, they're way braver than I am. They're, they're way more empowered than I am or that most men are. And I think we need to allow them to take that gauntlet. I don't think it's, Really, I mean, unless I had experienced being raped, I don't think it was a proper thing to put in the book. And it's also the reason why I left out the child abuse in the book, because it doesn't really, if you read the book, you'll see that it doesn't really sort of belong there. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not dismissing rape, and I'm not dismissing sexual abuse or child abuse or pedophilia or any of these things that can cause herpes, but it's it's a very tough subject and I think that would end up being a separate book. Yeah. So you're, now, you're writing this book from your experience. You've written this book from your experience and correct. it would just have been ingenuine to touch on it. Anything that was not experience based for you. 
I think so. Okay. I, I, I mean, there's, and here's the other thing too, you know, most of the people who bought my book were women mm-hmm. and people, women that I have never met and some women that I know who have both reached out to me and had said very positive things. Some, some had some critiques about some things. And like I said, you know, I'm not going to make everybody happy. Which is totally fine. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that criticism but, is is good though because yeah, it helps you. Yeah. It opens up perception for you. Like you're able to but see they, it in different but ways. None of them have touched on the rape comment. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks that maybe these people didn't read all the way through. Maybe they picked some things. Maybe it's and and unfortunately, maybe they have some experience with this. Yeah. And it's something that's very very important to them. And maybe it's something that really needs to be discussed more thoroughly. I just don't think I'm the proper person to do that. Understood. Understood. And I mean, part of the thing with this podcast is that everything is experience based. I don't try and say I'm a medical professional or I'm mm-hmm. qualified to talk about certain things. And when we get to those yeah. points, that's, I'm like, hey, you know, I don't know about this. You know, I can't give you statistics or facts. This is 100% experience-based. Everyone I talk to, everything that I share, it's just all based on experience. And I would not be able to speak from that experience myself. Um, We've had guests on here talk a little bit about it. And it is touchy. It's very touchy. It is something that... uh, It needs to be understood. And I've spoken with women who are involved with sexual assault survivors Mm -hmm. and one of the things that they say you know is you have to be very cautious about how you bring it up to a survivor so in this case it it, i see both sides it's Mm -hmm. in your case it could be good to just not bring it up because you don't necessarily it it doesn't it, it you don't have experience with it and then on right. the other but side, I also don't want to dismiss it as right. something that doesn't happen. Yeah. But the, I, but then again, like here we are, two guys with dicks talking about it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just it doesn't feel like a proper. It's just. But I think I think that there's also another two sides. So we can subgroup subgroups here and say that there are women who are sexual abuse assault survivors and that there are women who would want to hear. I think that us having this conversation is a step like two guys being able to acknowledge that itself and you know right now try to figure out how the fuck do we bring this up how do we talk about it how do we help without seeming like we're just riding the wave or trying to get some ass out of it you know like that's not like we we want to look like we're on board or be cool but that's not i mean that's not what we're doing here we literally just don't really understand how what the best way is for everyone for us to bring this to light because I think that, that, it that does is help. so true. And you know what? And here's the thing, too. Like, you and I, we can we can talk about it and we can empathize with women. And you probably even know women who have been raped. I know women who have been raped. And we can sympathize, we can empathize, and we can, to a certain extent, try to understand what they went through. But honestly, I, I will never be able to fully comprehend, mm-hmm. even though I have abuse before but that type of situation i don't know that i will ever be able to comprehend fully and i don't know if there's something like that is good enough is that dismissive towards that person and their pain you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. when you've experienced pain similar like that you know i'm not saying that we 
that the suffering is measurable in different ways, but we're probably suffering just as much. But then you you then infer the question of is that really a proper conversation to have of who's right. suffering more than the other? So I just I'm I'm, I'm kind of glad that I left it out. Yeah, and that and, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly yeah. fine. Um, so we are. Yeah, we're getting to the end. I knew that this was going to be a much longer episode than the others have been, just because I also wanted to get your experience on top of, you know, touching on everything in the book, which I think we've done a great job doing without giving away, you know, everything. We talked about your experience. We talked about the trials. We talked about how successful it's been for you. Um, I'm sure there are going to be other questions that people have, but we're getting to a point where I'd like to wrap this up. Sure. Um, one question I want to ask is how, like, what are the steps to get something like this to market? If it worked for you and it's worked for the other participants, how, like, what are the, what's keeping, uh, what's keeping it from being available? Silence. The utter and sheer silence of what we have here with this virus. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we spoke about the Me Too movement and we spoke about the Time's Up movement, those movements, these women have the ability to capture the commitment of something. And they have this bravery and they have this, uh, they, even though they're vulnerable, they still have this courage. And that's the measure of vulnerability. So imagine for a moment if the herpes community had that ability to capture the commitment and the ability to own it, and people started coming out, I think it's because of the silence that it's not getting attention because if no one is saying anything, everything must be fine. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the stigma, we also talk about how we place it upon ourselves by remaining quiet and remaining silent and not having the ability to change incorrect behavior or incorrect, incorrect behavior towards another person or even just being quiet and not saying anything right and then it's that it just it's shame i mean it's because of the stigma we have this shame associated with us and what we're saying right now is that there's strength in numbers you know the more absolutely the more uh someone knows someone who doesn't uh, come off as the kind of person who would have herpes according to the stigma of course and i use air quotes there um the more people are able to say, oh, you know, I know someone with it and it's not like that. Like, I, I'm educated to an, an extent. And then we're more so prepared in the event for, you know, people who don't have it for when they do come in contact with it or they meet someone that they could see a future with and have some sort of risk assessment in their head. Like, okay, this is what it is to have herpes. This person has herpes, you know, let me decide how to move forward before I just... Nope, not doing it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, we're never going to change the stigma on herpes by being silent. Mm-hmm. It's never going to happen. And if you're going to change the stigma of herpes, you have to change its perception. Yeah. So, you know, the perception is it's kind of scary for people who don't have herpes because it's 2018. Close to 5 billion people have type 1 and type 2. And if you plan on dating and you plan on touching and you plan on kissing and you plan on holding hands and doing all these things that we do as human beings, you're probably going to get herpes. Yeah. So there needs to be more open communication and there needs to be more discussion about it. And 
when I had started the petition to get uh, rational vaccines in front of Congress to discuss the burden of herpetic disease, I was shocked. And here we are years later, and there's only maybe 3,800 signatures. Yeah. And it's all because people are scared to put their name on it. Mm-hmm. So you have a disease, uh, you have a, a viral infection to where people are screaming in silence for help, but no one can hear them. Yeah. So, and, and, and by not being able to be heard, there must be nothing wrong. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but the Me Too movement was the same exact thing before women came forward and started taking a stand. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact thing. These mostly women and some men were in silence because they were forced to. They yeah. were taken advantage of. And now they're not taking it anymore. So, you know, imagine my dream is for the herpes community to finally come out and say, screw you, I have this. You know yeah. what I mean? And guess what? You're probably going to get it too. Yeah. And then <laughs> it it it's people who are outspoken about it. There, It's people like you. It's people who are in the media, the people who are closest to us, who are being educational about it. And, you know, we talked about this off the podcast, but just being more of like a lighthouse. Like, I didn't know that there were support groups or dating groups or interest groups out there until, I won't say the lady's name, who introduced me to the Facebook groups, but thank her, (laughs) seriously, because she was a lighthouse, essentially. You know, I'm in this dark place, and, you know, I put myself in the position to be in that spotlight and like oh what, what was that you know I'm able to swim the shore get closer to it and I'm able to see now oh there's all this out there and still even from a lighthouse perspective you know you see just what darkness is out there you see just how many people are out there who don't know about it and you know, all yep. you can do is just be there for them and shine your light. And when they're ready, you become a resource for them to become one themselves. And when you get enough lighthouses out there, you know, you can't only just cover your your line of sight as a white lighthouse. Like, if there's enough of us, then shit, every, it's like the sun's out. You know, everyone gets to see it and everyone's like, oh, okay, you know, this is okay. <laughs> and you know, they know. It's, it's, it's so much darker when a light goes out than it would have been if it had never shown. Who said that? I read that in the book. Who, who, John John Steinbeck. Got it. All right. <laughs> I do. I love your I love your lighthouse analogy, and I lo- I love the way that you just said that because sometimes just being there for somebody means more to them than anything else. Mm-hmm. And if you can just show, even in your words on Facebook or even in your position wherever you are to show that you're just there for somebody. They may never even reach out, but they just know that you are there. It means so much more. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so were there any other things that you wanted to leave us with about the book that, you know, you wanted to make sure that the listeners are left with, or was there anything that wasn't in there that you wish you had put in or anything like that? Um, a part of me wishes that I, well, the problem is, is that if I spent more time on it, and anybody who writes will tell you, the um, the book would have been like 500 pages. <laughs> no, no, I'm happy. And, I'm happy with what it was because I was able to read it between last night and this morning. So <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's it's only 160 pages, but it is. 
I think it's, and from what people have told me, it's chock full of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not, there's some anecdotal stuff, but there's also a lot of factual information. You know, you can go to my website and you can see all the references. You can look up every single reference. And what so, is that website? Uh, askingforafriend.us. Dot .us, not dot .com. This is askingforafriend.us. Dot .us. And links to Dr. Halford's work spanning over the past 20 years is there. Um, which are on the uh, National Institute of Health website as well. So, you know, this is this is actually something that's based on real science. And then, you know, I also want to leave a takeaway with people that, you know, uh, even though I am where I am at the moment, there's really no guarantee with immunotherapy. And who knows, maybe a year from now, I may need a booster shot. So, in a way, in full disclosure... There's a part of me that is being a little selfish and trying to help with this because where am I going to go and where are some of the people in the trial going to go if they need more shots? Mm. So there's no yeah. there's no way for you to be able to get that at this point. No. Oh shit. No, it's it's it, it would be illegal of rational vaccines to to just give me a shot in the Got United it. States. So um, I think that another takeaway is too, I know there's a lot of silence with rational vaccines at the moment. Um, I'm pretty damn confident and I know that they're actually still working. Good. Um, they are continuing with what they're doing and their plan to do trials overseas in Mexico and other countries, I think is still going to happen. Okay. Um, I, I can't say with hundred percent accuracy. But if you really follow what's been going on and just kind of use a little bit of common sense, you can kind of see where this is going. Mm -hmm. um, and I really just kind of want the people who are suffering to be able to get this. Yeah. So because we, just, we really if, just have if, to if push it for it. For me, who nothing has ever worked for, imagine for somebody who only gets a couple outbreaks maybe every couple of months. How this could actually bring them back to being human again. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if there's any takeaway from that, I, I hope that people actually get something out of the book. I hope we can change the stigma. But I also think that the vaccine actually changes the story because it actually gives some hope. Mm -hmm. Instead of leaving all of the work upon your emotional state to make yeah. yourself feel better. Now, now there's actually something that I think that may be tangible. Right. All right, man. Well, um, where can people find you on social media? Um, I am on Facebook at Make Herpes Go Away. Um, I'm also on Twitter under the uh, tag of Rational Vaxxer. Um, but you can actually reach all of these locations from my website at askingforafriend.us. All right, cool. And then um, as far as the book, where can people find the book? Just going to the website and order Yeah. Yeah, you can go on the website. Um, I, actually, I had some people begging me for signed copies, and I haven't really figured out a way to do that. But oh, you may. Good thing I got yeah. you on here now before your rates went up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to put them on eBay mm -hmm. and just sell them at the regular price, nothing extra. There you go. Just a, just a regular price. It's just a signature, you know. Yeah. I, I would be silly to think that I'm 
you know, let it, don't let the, yeah, don't let the fan go to your so, head. Yeah, I'm so special <laughs> that somebody wants my signature, but <laughs> if they do want it, it's, you, you can buy it for the same exact price that you buy it from the website. And it's just, it's a little extra work for me, but I don't care. It's totally cool. <laughs> oh my God. Right in, signing your name is a little extra work. <laughs> Get out of here. I'm going to let you go, man. <laughs> so this concludes this episode of something positive for positive people. I can be found on social media at H on my chest. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit. And then on Facebook, I'm just Courtney Brain. That's just my name. Um, if you like this episode or any other episode, it really helps for us to have reviews left on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast player you're listening on. It's helping people connect with this podcast and then become connected to additional resources for support, interest groups, dating, and whatever else it is that they need. So please, please, please keep on adding those reviews for us. I thank you for taking the time to listen. And once again, this is Courtney Brame signing off. H on my chest on social media with Rich Mancuso. Rich, say bye to the people. Thank you, everybody. See you later. Stay positive.